Welcome to the Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli, along with my friend Barry Schuster, the founding editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks very much for asking. I'm looking forward to talking to our special guest today and finding out how they got in the restaurant business, why they got in the restaurant business, and hearing some pearls of wisdom from them uh, that be useful to our, our listeners today. Absolutely. And we're going to have some fun because we've got a really good show lined up. So uh, grab a drink, make yourself comfortable, and welcome to the Corner Booth. Well, Barry, today we've got a really special guest joining us on the corner booth. Uh, special in a way because uh, this gentleman and I go way, way back, probably more years than we'd like to remember. Uh, but I'd like to introduce you to Doug Brooks. Doug is the former CEO and chairman of Brinker International. Doug, welcome to the corner booth. Well, Barry and Chris, good morning and thank you for inviting me to the corner booth. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I know you and Chris go back a few years, and so uh, Chris, why don't you uh, introduce uh, Doug and, and tell him a little about uh, the things he's done. Of course, anybody in the restaurant industry is probably familiar with his name and, and his brands. That's true. That's true, Barry. Doug Brooks is an icon in the industry. People will know him uh, from his long tenure, from the early years to helping to develop and expand the brand Chili's. Uh, to then becoming uh, more active in corporate as president of that brand, moving on to management of other brands and chairman and CEO of that company. Um, but uh, we know him also from before that as being active uh, in the hotel restaurant management at the Conrad Hilton School in uh, Houston, Texas. Uh, and a few friends of mine were fortunate enough to work with Doug back in those early years, managing restaurants um, and playing a little bit of softball. So, Doug, uh, we're always interested, and our listeners are always interested. What brought you into the restaurant business um, when you started your career? Well, thanks, Barry. And it really was more of just kind of needing money. I was a part of a large family, eight kids. My father died when I was very young in an airplane accident. And so our mom was working, and I knew, like, in eighth grade, I needed some money. So I got on my bike one day and ended up at this place called Young Bloods Fried Chicken. And... There weren't uh, child labor laws then, and they needed a dishwasher and a busboy, and they signed me up. And uh, I think even at that first job, the summer after eighth grade, I, I loved the free food. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved kind of the adrenaline of the shift. You know, everybody all kind of working together, and I loved the team part. I was an athlete when I was young, besides the restaurant softball league that Chris mentioned. But just kind of fell in love with all the excitement and action. And, and that first job, I do remember this all the different diverse people that worked in that restaurant. I was just this young kid, but I, I found out and realized that the people that I worked with, the Young Bucks Fried Chicken, I would have never met in my neighborhood or at my school, you know, from a hostess who seemed like she was 50, she was probably 30, to the folks that were in the kitchen and the front of the house. It was just a very diverse group of people, different ages, backgrounds, and we were all a team and we were all working together. And when the shift was over at night, we'd all sit around and kind of talk about how it went. And it just felt like family. And I think I, I didn't know it then, but I fell in love with the industry at that very first job for kind of all those reasons. Hey, Barry, I think this is a good time to take a moment so we can say thank you to those that actively support the independent restaurant operator, like today's sponsor, Benny Keith Food Company. 
I don't know if you realize this, but it's been over 100 years or so that they've been offering many, many different products, uh, food, services, and equipment. This is the reason why they're known as the home of the independent restaurant operator. Uh, Because they believe in the strong success of the restaurant operator, they offer assistance with management, inventory solutions, menu planning, item costing, and more. So to our listeners, I'd say if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how the professionals at Ben E. Keith can help you and your restaurant succeed and grow, just contact them, 832-652-5888, or visit them on uh, the website, bennykeith.com slash food slash host. And then you went on, um, you decided you were going to go to uh, college at the University of Houston at the uh, Conrad Hilton School, am I correct? Well, I, I didn't, yeah, I wish I could have planned it that well. I actually was coming here because, I, I wasn't a very good student, so there were no scholarships. I was a decent baseball player, and I wanted to try for the baseball team, and I really wanted to live in a city like Dallas. Houston was like Dallas. It had concerts and sports, and, you know, that was all. Back when I got to U of H, I majored three different things. I didn't even know they had a, a restaurant program. And, but I was working in the dorms. I was working in, in you know, on-campus restaurants. And finally, a friend of mine said, hey, keep changing majors. You know, you work in the restaurants. They have a restaurant program, and I said, they do? So my fourth major was hotel and restaurant, and uh, I think, again, I, I found my passion, I found my career path, and I got a degree to match up with it. Four was the lucky number. I guess so. I guess so. So uh, why don't you kind of take us from there and talk about how uh, you were introduced maybe to, uh, uh, to the Chili's concept, what you first saw there, the attraction and the early years uh, with that group? Well, so uh, I'll stay in college first. I, I ended up getting a bunch of opportunities. Aramark, who was then called ARA, had the food contract here at the University of Houston. And uh, I kept running into managers that were looking for young guys that would work hard and get paid nothing. And I kind of filled that bill. So uh, I went from collecting name cards at the dorm cafeteria in Oberhurst Hall. The manager wanted to sleep in, so he said, hey, if you're the junior student manager, will you open the door at 5 in the morning so I can come in at 8? And I said, sure. So I really was a babysitter, but I started, you know, getting responsibilities, and they let me manage a snack bar in the Moody Towers. And, again, I was a student manager, but they let me do schedules and ordering, and then I became a student advisor of the dorm, so I had 40 other kids on my floor, and I was sort of in charge of it. So I started getting maybe some leadership opportunities. And then, luckily, an old high school buddy of mine was, managing at this steakhouse restaurant, this little steakhouse, and we saw each other one day, and he said, hey, have you ever been a bartender? And I go, no, and he goes, would you like to be one? <laughs> I said, sure. And so this guy's name was Rick Stewart, and I hadn't seen him. We were in high school and came to U of H together, and he was managing this amazing steak restaurant at Westheimer and Bessler, and so he hired me as a bartender, and I knew nothing about bartending. I was really terrible. Uh, and then, but it was a great place and got great experience. And, and as Chris remembers, because he joined that organization, the owner of this gentleman named Chandler uh, opened another restaurant called The Park, which is where Chris ended up at, and then opened a barbecue restaurant called Luther's, which are now the Pappas barbecue places. And so we, we were just sort of uh, working in those restaurants in Houston. But I had a couple high school buddies who had gone to work for Chili's, one of them a good friend named Ken Dennis. And uh, he just said, hey, you gotta check out this Chili's place. There was one at Fountain View in Richmond, and there was one in Dallas. There were just two at the time. And everybody seemed to be having fun. They were doing a lot of business. They were lining outside the doors. And it was sort of this beginning of casual dining, which we can talk about, where it was 
burgers and french fries like a fast food restaurant, but they were served in a basket and it was a, you could order how you wanted them prepared, medium rare, just a higher quality product with some, uh, you know, they had margaritas and beer and uh, it was sort of this tweener place, very inexpensive, but great portions and great food. And so I, my wife Holly and I, who had just gotten married, decided, well, let's give it a shot. Let's try something different. We fall, we really had fallen out of love with Chandler. So I know when we talk about leadership, he was probably a good example of a, of a boss who, at first, you sort of fell in love with his optimism, and you found out he was probably exaggerating or lying just to lead you on. There wasn't a lot of trust there. So, and I like to say that, man, that people usually quit managers, not companies. Well, I quit because the, band, the boss, Chandler, uh, I didn't trust. And went to Chili's, and it became a uh, what is now a 42-year love affair. I'm still a part of that organization now in a consulting role. And you know what? I would have guessed wrong. I could have sworn that you went first and Ken followed. But I stand corrected. Well, Ken, you know, Ken was at the park with you, Chris, and he was going to college and he was working, you know, lots of hours, as you remember, yeah. lots of hours. Yeah. And, and wasn't getting paid a whole lot. And he basically fell in love with his boss. That's true. You know, and leadership is about how you get people, how you respect other people as well, and they respect you because of that. So Kenny left first, and then he kind of said, hey, this place, the leaders at, at Chili's are genuine, and they're part of the team, and, and they don't lead you on. And all the things you want from a parent or a coach or a teacher or a boss, it sounded intriguing. And I was tired of being taken advantage of, which is what I felt like was going on. And the interesting thing was my wife and I, we sat down literally on a piece of paper when we were making this decision, because we were scared. Chili's had two restaurants. And Chandler kept telling us he was going to build hundreds of losers all over the country and we'd be part of this big company. And we wrote down this piece of paper, kind of the pros and cons. And I still have that piece of paper. And it's funny, you don't know what you don't know when you try to make a decision, but all the things we thought that were going to happen, we thought Chandler's company was going to be this big, great company and Chili's was just going to be this fun, nice place that I'd enjoy working at. So I certainly didn't join it because I thought they'd grown to the second largest casual dining portfolio international company in the world. I joined them because I was just looking for a fun place to go where I'd enjoy myself and work on a great team and uh, got lucky. It just sort of showed up at the right place at the right time and the rest was history. The 80s and 90s, uh, Doug, seemed to be a heyday for casual chains, not only including Chili's. What was going on during that time demographically or otherwise where... Uh, there was just uh, so much uh, interest in these concepts and they were so darn popular, not that they aren't still, but it, it seems to be a lot different market today than it was back then. Well, I think, uh, Barry, the big change was, obviously, in the 60s and 70s, people didn't eat out much. They ate home with mom, almost like the TV show Leave the Beaver. You know, there was a meal every night in the dining room. And then all of a sudden, I think the biggest change in the demographics was females entering the workforce and there's lots of statistics that show that as women in the join the workforce of the 70s 80s and 90s then young couples at the end of the day they get off work both of them had worked they were tired they didn't feel like going and cooking and washing dishes and they were ready to reward themselves for both working and so there was all of a sudden a dynamic where uh, there were consumers looking to eat out and at Chili's, uh, this, this probably isn't a very objective statement, we like to say that we helped create casual dining because we, in the 70s, you had either upscale dining where people had on a suit, your waiter maybe even had on a suit and a tuxedo, uh, you got dressed up, or you went to fast food. There certainly was family dining in McDonald's and Burger King. 
where Chili's became this place that said, hey, you don't have to get dressed up. Just come as you are. In fact, the servers are in blue jeans and tennis shoes. They're, they're dressed as they are. You don't have to do a whole lot. And when you come, we're going to get you great food, flavorful food, great value. And if you want an adult beverage, sure, why not? So we sort of, and then Steak and Ale, which Norman Brinker, I'll talk about who joined us in Chili's. He had already created Steak and Ale, which was more of a, a value place to eat high-quality food. And I think uh, all of a sudden the restaurant industry had options for these young couples who were both working and wanted to eat out more. And, 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 and as you said, Barry, in the 80s and 90s, casual dining grew like crazy. And the TGI Fridays and the Bennigan's and the Ruby Tuesdays and the Chili's, uh, I mean, we were, we were building, you know, 40 and 50 a year. And it was uh, all we could do to, to develop and develop managers to lead those restaurants. But you certainly had people eating out more and more. Um, so the dynamics certainly changed, but females in the workforce, I think, was the number one thing that impacted people eating out more. You know, an interesting thing that uh, a key that I see similar similar uh, to what you're saying there, Doug, is that the same rationale you used is finding the right place for employment, a place where you just felt like there was a good sense of belonging, a sense of fun, uh, is also what people were looking for when they were dining out at that time. I think you explained it very well. It doesn't have to be fast food. It didn't also have to be formal or special occasion. But to go out and have quality meal with friends, with family, and have fun um, without spending a lot of money was something that we were discovering. And, and I think back then, you know, even Victoria Station and Steak and Ale, the, 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 there was a drama. I mean, there was a uniform in some of those places, but there was also a, a decor and a brand that made it a special experience. Of course, they had live music like we had at the Great Mind Company. And so you didn't have to dress up, but you did get to go out and experience something that was fun. Uh, and, and somebody cooked for you and somebody washed the dishes for you. And so you, you were rewarding yourself. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy time, a great time to be in casual dining. Uh, and luckily, Chili's was doing very well during those times. And Doug, while people were lining up at Chili's and other uh, similar concepts, uh, what was going on with the independent market at that point? Or were you too busy, you know, building uh, that brand to really be thinking about what was going on with the uh, so-called mom and pops and the single and uh, emerge, you know, small emerging multi-unit concepts? Uh, were they getting left behind because of the big marketing budgets that the brands had? Or were there other things going on that that uh, were affecting the independent restaurant market? Barry, I think it was, I think in the 80s and 90s, it was just as vibrant. The opportunities were just as great for the independent operators too. I believe it's probably harder now uh, because of the cost of medical insurance and a lot of the other dynamics that a big organization probably has more economies of scale for purchasing, for relocation, for all the things that the bigger you are, you have those advantages. But I believe in the 80s and 90s, it was a great market for everybody. Uh, you know, and now today, marketing has changed so much. Social media is less expensive than having a TV ad. So again, I think today there are some uh, situations where the independent operator still can compete with the big groups because uh, you get on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and you can tell your message. You can tell stories about your brand where in the 90s and 2000s, only the big guys that could uh, afford TV advertising had a little bit of advantage to them. 
And I think one of the things too, back then, say 80s and 90s, you brought up so many good brands that made impact, whether it was a Steak and Ale Victoria Station, whether it was Chili's, Bennigan's, Friday's, Cork and Cleaver, etc. One of the things that we may have noticed was that the independents were sort of emulating what chains were doing. Chains were sort of setting a tone, um, uh, as, as I recall. Uh, is, is that how you read it back then too? You know, the other thing that happened, and I'll give Norman Brinker, the founder of Steak and Ale and the guy who Chili's uh, eventually named our company after Brinker International, when he first, he, he was one of the first leaders to hire young people that, to work in restaurants. Before him, you'd go into a restaurant and a waiter might have been a 40 or 50 year old person. When Norman got going, he literally recruited college kids. And they started as waiters and bartenders and busboys, but then all of a sudden he started growing those same bartenders and busboys and cooks became assistant managers and then general managers and they became area directors and then they became CEOs and I mean there was a time when about half the restaurant companies were run by people that had worked with Norman but my point Chris is that a lot of those folks also then started their own independent restaurant companies they, they, learned, they got experience with the big change they learned about all the things the big change did about real estate and technology of accounting and finance but then they then a lot of that point started some of their own small companies uh houston's is a great example you know exactly Drinker that then started their own little chains and, and a lot of them still are doing well and, and are but they learned how the big companies did it and applied that knowledge to their own little independent brand you were, um, you know, with uh, the Chili's, as, as you mentioned, for so long, I mean, 40 some years. So one of the key things that I know you went through was uh, in addition to the Chili's growth, uh, Brinker International diversified either by purchasing or developing other brands, uh, whether it was Maggiano's, Cozy Mills, On the Border, etc. Um, I know that there's a lot of independents that are listeners that although the scale isn't the same, uh, deal with that, where they're going from one concept but wanting a second, or doing something different than you know what they had done before. So, could you take a couple minutes and talk about the advantages of those times, or the disadvantages, what it may have done to whatever admin, uh, brand management, uh, personnel when you diversify like that? Well, Chris, it's a great question, and I, the reason we did it was we were a public company. We went public in January of nineteen eighty four, and. Uh, and it's funny, you probably followed this week, TTI Fridays announced they may go back public again, so nothing ever remains the same, but uh, Wall Street, the, the shareholders that own your brand, if you're a public company, if you don't grow at some percentage, and back then it was 15%, your stock price gets hammered and a lot of bad things happen to your company, and because there wasn't a lot of restaurants, I'm going back to the mid-80s now, I think the biggest restaurant chain then might have been Red Lobster and they might have had, and Steak and Al might have had 100 or 150 restaurants. No one ever thought, Chili's has 1,700 restaurants now. No one ever thought that could happen. So we started developing or buying other brands for the real intent that we thought we'd run out of Chili's and we'd need other brands to keep growing so that we could keep our shareholders in Wall Street happy. So that was the reason for it. But to your question, uh, I think people saw talk. Uh, the word focus is what, uh, for, for all those years I was the president or CEO, you'd say, what? And, and, and by the way, Brinker over the lifetime has had about 20 different restaurant brands. So you mentioned a few of them, and most of them we didn't create. We bought them from other uh, operators, primarily two guys. One guy named Richard Melman, who has a group in Chicago called Let Us Entertain You, and a guy in Dallas named Phil Romano, the same gentleman that created Flood Records initially. And we were, we were really replicators. 
they were sort of the mad scientists that created the brands and we buy them from them and then we replicate them. But uh, it, it, it does create lots of challenges. So when I was chief operating officer uh, in the 90s, one time we had 10 different brands. So you can imagine uh, the, the exciting part is you get a chance to have different menus, different brand work, you get to uh, stretch people in some different assignments. The challenge is uh, you're not very focused, and sometimes decisions you make on real estate or on menu development or on people, you take the number two person at Chili's and then send them to one of the smaller brands, and you weaken the leadership team at Chili's, and then that other brand isn't successful and sort of borrowed money from Peter to pay Paul. So uh, my, my youngest son, who's 33 years old, he and his college roommate, they're up in Dallas, and they have three different restaurants and so they started off with a sandwich shop there's two here in houston called east hampton sandwich company one's in the river oaks area and one's underground downtown and then they started talking about doing a casual dining restaurant i said are y'all crazy what are you doing you already had this wonderful little sandwich shop the investment's low it's not real complicated to operate why are you talking about doing a casual dining brand and they said well because we love the business and we want to try something different so they opened this full service, brunch on the weekends, full bar, brand called Hudson House. And they now have two of them, they're working on a third and it's doing great. And next week they opened the third restaurant, a steakhouse called Drake's. These are two young kids in their thirties who have a group of investors that support them. But my son Kyle worked at Chili's for about four years on the marketing team. So again, he learned a lot of things about marketing and brand management from our company. And now he's applying those with these little neighborhood restaurants, he and his college roommate have this little small company, but they're utilizing a lot of things they learn, and they love having the variety of brands. In fact, they just bought a fourth building and are thinking about creating a hot chicken concept now, which would be a fourth brand. So not a lot of focus, I guess, if you were going to be critical and think that doing multiple brands isn't a great idea. They love it. So person works at one brand for a while, gets a chance to transfer and work at a different one, so it stretches them and teaches them. They have chefs that get to create and work on different menus. Right. They have a real estate guy who's finding different locations. So, uh, you know, I, I guess the old, the old school thinking is, if you've got something good, just keep doing that one thing well. Uh, that would kind of be a shot at being creative and trying new things. So I don't think there's one rule that applies to everybody, but be careful. Uh, having one great restaurant is tricky. Thinking you can just magically create two or three, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's challenging. So uh, I'm, I'm more old school and more conservative, but I also ran a company that had, you know, one time almost 2,000 restaurants and 10 different brands at one time. So uh, it can drive you crazy, but it also is so exciting and so much fun. Doug, you pointed out the uh, changes in marketing, uh, social media, of course, uh, which uh, – has become a more prevalent platform. Uh, uh, you know, everybody sees that and, and thank you for the observation. You know, based on your years of experience in the business, looking back and now looking at the current marketplace, what changes in the marketplace um, could you talk about to our independent operator listeners that they should be aware of and where you see some great opportunity for independent operators, uh, maybe not unlike uh, your son and his partners? Barry, I think the, you know, the biggest thing that I noticed and I pay attention to, and it certainly impacts any current organization that has restaurants, bricks and mortar, leases, occupancy costs, is what I call the Amazon impact. This world that's changing so fast that all of us want to pick up our phone or our iPad and order things to be delivered to our front door, and Amazon will get them there today or tomorrow. And, that's now transferred into this whole idea of third-party delivery for restaurants. 
Um, and so almost every large restaurant company like ours has less guest counts in the dining room than they have because people are a couple times a week ordering through a third-party delivery company, DoorDash or Uber Eats or Grubhub or Favor, all the different brands. And so I think it creates, uh, it's tricky because you're, the brand that you created with a, with a, with a bricks and mortar building, you have a uniform, you have colors, you have this whole signage, you have, you've created an eating experience. And when a third party delivery person sends a text that says, I'll be at your door soon and shows up with a brown bag and hands it off, that's not exactly representing the brand that you put so much time and effort into creating in that bricks and mortar. So I think, uh, I believe Barry, that you're probably gonna see smaller restaurants because a lot of the people are you're delivering to them instead of them coming to you. You don't want to have as big of a space. Uh, I know uh, we at Chili's has a partnership with DoorDash, and uh, they are doing starting to do some ghost kitchens where they actually have warehouses in lower rent districts where you can order a, an item online, a brand you know and love, but you're literally ordering it from a kitchen in a warehouse, and they're delivered to your house. So mm-hmm. you're paying less rent but you still get to have the brand ID and brand identification of brand products, but you don't have a 10-year lease on a piece of real estate in an expensive neighborhood. I think you're gonna have to be open to those sort of things. Uh, it is funny though, ultimately eating out is an experience. I, I remember people 10 years ago saying there wouldn't be movie theaters anymore. But I think even if you can get any movie you want at home on your TV set, the people still like going out for the real experience. And movie theaters, of course, now are having to offer limited fall, which competes with uh, young operators. So I think the whole third-party thing, and then and then I didn't even talk about the cost of what the third-party companies want to charge you um, for their services, which I think is, is lower is coming down, thank goodness. But I think you just have to be careful. Uh, people are, the consumers are changing. Uh, instead of wanting to go out, sometimes they just order in. And if you have an expensive lease or a large building, it may not be utilized quite as much as it has been. And what are you, uh, are, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the availability of labor and this the general labor pool right now for hospitality? A lot of discussion um, about that among operators. Uh, of course, depending on the market, um, uh, the pool of qualified labor uh, can vary. Um, what are your observations in terms of uh, staffing these days? Well, Barry, I think it's always been tough, and you said it. Every 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 situation is different. Uh, we have restaurants in some college towns where you know during the school year we have more team members than we can hire, and then during the summer or winter break when they're gone, there's nobody there. So every situation is different. Uh, I think it's always been challenging, and depending on what employer unemployment's like in the country has a big bearing on that, of course. Uh, I'm old school though. People that say, oh. You know, these Gen Xers, Gen Yers, they aren't hard workers. I think like people have always been saying, well, this next generation, I believe that a great leader can motivate people to work for them. Uh, and, and I also believe that uh, one of the other challenges is just uh, the rising pay scale and the increase in technology. You certainly hear a lot of QSR and fast food restaurants going more and more to ordering on a tablet or some sort of an iPad or a computer. And unfortunately, the higher the uh, the higher, I think there's 24 states that are increasing minimum wage costs as of January 1st this year in 2020. And the higher the restaurants are, are forced to pay based on minimum wage increases or whatever, the more you're going to see computers or different technologies that may be more reliable but not the human touch. 
one interesting sidelight story I can tell you. I'm on the Southwest Airlines Board of Directors. So here's a company famous for people and human interaction, how they treat folks and their culture. Yet as they've created more technology around bag tagging and, and you know, obviously you order your ticket online, you can print your ticket online or just bring your phone, you now get bag tags. So literally, Southwest Airlines, your experience with human beings at the airport, you don't have to go to a gate counter anymore. You basically just show up and get on the plane. Yet the more technology they've added, the higher their customer service scores have gone up. Same thing at Chili's, we added these iPads on every table with a company called Zios, and it, it basically let the customer order themselves at a full service restaurant. And we, people said, well, aren't you worried that consumers are gonna be mad that the server, uh, and, like, and what we found out is they're actually happy because they control the experience more and tip percentages have actually gone up as we've added more technology. So I think integration of technology is one way for operators to uh, help help with either tough employment situations or addition of technology uh, to make the guest experience smoother and easier and they're in more control and they may not notice that they, you know, actually have less people waiting on that. They may actually be happy that they can manage their experience themselves. But I think labor for our industry is always gonna be a challenge. We've always had turnovers at 100%. Yeah. It, gets, it boils down to great leaders creating a great environment, motivating people to want to be part of their team, and then now using technology to tell them they adapt possibly. So, Doug, could you expand a little bit on that for our listeners who right now have the couple restaurants and your points about um, proper management uh, and good leadership is, is, is a constant? And I think it's something that a lot of people are... Um, you know, are, 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 are troubling to try to find their way, you know, of developing selection uh, and retention that works. So what would be the tips that you'd like to pass on to people that are in that situation that need to create a positive work environment to make the most of their staff? Well, Chris, I'll probably go old school on you. Uh, I know there's lots of tools available. And, and since I haven't been in the business day to day for about five years now, I'm not an expert on telling you what the tools are. I know at Chili's we have an outside third-party group that has created an online test that helps us uh, understand things about people being a good team player, working with other people, liking to take care of other people. I think ultimately you hear folks say that the greatest restaurant team members are people that love to be part of the team and love to take care of other people. They have a servant's heart. They want to help others. They want to entertain others. But you and I both know, Barry does as well, that in an interview it's hard to sometimes pick that out. Uh, so I go back to what the leader does, as I said before, that people usually quit managers, not companies. And, you know, I worked with some amazing leaders in my career, and I think you, you know, you want to be a real genuine person. My mother was the person that impacted me the most, the way she treated people. She made you feel like you're the only person that you met that day, and so I think when you work in a restaurant, you immediately find leaders that you respect and, and say, I want to be like that leader. And you work for people that you know you don't want to be like because you see how they act under pressure. And, you know, it's tough being the, running a restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night when things aren't going perfectly. But uh, I think you can get anything in the world you want as a leader if you're willing to help others get what they want. And it's creating that kind of dynamic with your staff. Uh, someone said, I don't know who said this, somebody smart said they may not remember what you say they may not remember what you did but they'll always remember how you made them feel and i think a lost art in being a leader of a restaurant is how you make your people feel uh, i mean certainly a great leader has to 
create a strategy and try to get people aligned behind that strategy and and, and, and but you have to be respectful and you have to be honest and you have to act with integrity and you have to create a personal relationship with everyone that works for you and you have to you want to involve others in decisions ask questions but listen i mean i think you, you can get bus boys and, and dishwashers and cooks and servers and hostesses all engaged in being part of a cool place but it just takes that one that one leader you know that shows vulnerability that uh norman Brecker used to say it's nice to be important but it's more important to be nice and it just seems like i've worked with people that had big egos and weren't always willing to show vulnerability or let their team be part of the the leadership making decisions, whether it be on scheduling or prep lists or how to do inventory, let, let your team help you and they're gonna then be more loyal and dedicated and stay with you longer. Uh, so getting the right people in is important, but I think it's more important that after you hire someone to create a dynamic that they love being there and love you as a leader and they'll do anything for you. Um, there was this uh, famous football coach, you guys probably heard of him, Lou Holtz. And he came and spoke to a large group we had one time. And he talked about whether you're a football coach or, or running a restaurant. And there's a lot of similarities because yeah. football coaches have to get new players in all the time and restaurant leaders have to get new team members in. But he said there was always three questions that came up that signified whether the leader had done a good job or not. One was the team looking at the leader and saying, can we trust him? You know, can you trust that person? The answer is that yes is pretty important the second one is the team member asking the leader does that leader really care about me and then third does the leader create a dynamic do you want to win uh because you know in restaurants nobody wants to work hard but nobody wants to be in a place that nobody comes to and so winning in a restaurant is a place that's full every night and so the leader has to create this bar that's really high whether it be service cleanliness uh the quality of food and so if if the team member can trust the leader, if the team member thinks the leader cares about them, and if the leader has created this dynamic that's super high, clean, great uh, experience, welcome food, well, you know, everybody's going to want to work there. Well, Doug, I hope our listeners really took your views on leadership to heart. Um, it's just great stuff. And it, it also brings up another um, topic which comes up quite frequently when we talk to independent operators, and that's the uh, role of culture. Um, once they've gotten their brand and their operations in place, creating this culture, which um, becomes more and more challenging for them as they grow from one to two to five to 10 units, because they want not only consistency in their systems and their food, but in the guest experience and a lot of the younger operators, uh, guys your son's age say, you know, you got to have a certain culture now, when you were running Chili's, um, you know, we're talking 1,700 units and then 2,000 units with your total business. Um, uh, was culture something that you talked about in the early days? And, and you know, how do you, how do you replicate culture, let alone 10 units, 1,700 units? Barry, it's, it's a great question, and it's a hard, long, complicated answer, but we talk about culture all the time. Uh, I think the challenge is that when people talk about culture, they sometimes think that means, uh, oh, we're just going to have fun and everybody's great. And I, and I think a really great culture is a place where, yes, there's a great environment that's been created by the leader, but it also is a culture where you can have di you can have uh, honest dialogue about things, uh, not just we're having fun today, but hey, how can we get how can we get better at 
at serving our guests? How can we get better at getting the food out of the kitchen quicker? How, how do you work better? But I think part of culture, and it has to start when you're really small, is creating uh, unique things about that company. So at Chili's, we had a bunch of funny things that we said and what we called each other. We called each other Chili Heads if you work there. You're a Chili Head. And uh, when you left the company, there was a saying, once a Chili Head, always a Chili Head. And maybe the best analogy I can make, uh, and I didn't go there, but anyone that ever knows about what happens at Texas A&M University, they have all these weird, strange things. Their cheerleaders are called yell leaders, and they have all these funny cultural things that they do that are unique to just being an Aggie. And I've never met anyone at A&M that wasn't proud of all those funny, unique things that they did that made them special and unique, almost, almost cultish. People say, well, it's kind of a cult. Well, it's kind of cool because nobody else says or does the things like they do. And so I think with a company, if I was starting a company today, I'd want to create not just words. First of all, it has to be a specific dialogue and think terms. It has to be one language. Because what happens when you get bigger is you have other leaders that come in. Every leader brings with them their own acronyms, their own expressions from other organizations. And over time, and this happened at Chile's at a breaker, over time you lose that original culture. So language is really important. So we had, if you came to our restaurant, you were a guest, period. That's the only word that was used in our company. If you worked for our company, you were a team member, period. If you worked at our corporate headquarters, that was called the Restaurant Support Center. And on and on. So we just had, we just felt like language, common language and common management philosophies were important. And we had key results that everybody in the company knew, these four key results. We had these five cultural beliefs that those are, that's the way we acted. Some companies have values. I feel like values are how you feel. Cultural beliefs are how you act. Much more important because it's how you behave. And, and then we had these little cards called above the line cards. And whenever somebody would live the five cultural beliefs, one or two or three of them, and help get our results in front of as many people as possible. You'd give them an above-the-line card, and you'd call out what the cultural belief was that they lived that day. So I'm going on and on here, but we kind of had a system that we thought created the culture. It was a common language. It was leaders using the same toolbox, giving public recognition, telling stories, um, it made us, we, we tried to be different. We tried to be unique and different. So when people came to work for you, they'd go, hey, you have a culture that is different and unique. And by the way, if you didn't abide by that culture, usually the culture would kind of spit people out. It, it, you mm-hmm. know, if you didn't want to sort of conform to being an Aggie at Texas A&M, you weren't going to have much fun there. If you didn't want to be a chili head when you came to Chili's, but I believe it helped make uh, what you don't want. And I've heard this before is when you work for some big companies, you get transferred from one department to another or one uh, restaurant to another. It's like you joined a new company because the leader has their own way of leading. But I just, I don't think that creates uh, a cultural dynamic across a large organization. So whether you have 1,700 restaurants or two or three, you can lose culture very quickly because the leader wants to kind of be rogue and do their own thing and talk their own language. And eventually that hurts the company as it starts to grow. Yeah, Doug, this is this is really, really uh, important points you're making. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that the listeners are picking up the common thread I am going from development uh, and, and leadership development into the practice of culture. I'm hearing the practice of developing that trust, uh, working with honesty and respectability and um, and. I think those are that's a tremendous foundation for anyone who's just beginning their small company and wanting it to grow to work from. Um, could you take us into something else that I know is very important to you, and that's involvement in community. Uh, you've always been 
active in the community. Maybe you could share some of your experiences and tell some of our uh, listeners uh, the advantages that you feel that uh, small growing businesses today can do by playing an active role in the community. Well, thanks, Chris. I, I, I really feel strongly about this, and I go back to Norman Brinker, this amazing leader who uh, kind of taught us about this important thing. And we always, each brand always had its own charity, charitable partner, whether it was a local or national. And the team members that worked in that brand would get very involved and engaged. We put on fundraisers, depending on what the what the brand was. And this was from uh, Susan Komen Foundation to March of Dimes. Maggiano's currently still is with Make-A-Wish. Chili's is with St. Jude Children's Hospital. But, uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of research now about young people, whether this is millennials or now moving into Gen X and Gen Ys, that they really want to work for a company that stands for something. In fact, it's more important uh, to work for a place. It's not important for what a company sells. It's more important to what they stand for. And, and we also found out that the guest likes to help. So mm-hmm. the chili story is probably the most dramatic one. Now we have a lot of locations, but years ago we decided to match up with a charitable uh, national partner because St. Jude actually helps kids with cancer in every state and all over the world. So even though it's a national hospital, it works in every community. And we started the program called Create a Pepper to Fight Childhood Cancer. And every September, in the month of September, if you go into Chili's, there's a little the, the guest, the server will give the guest a, basically a piece of paper with a, a, a chili pepper in black and white and some crayons, and you color it in and you put your name on it. We'll post it on the wall, and then we ask you to make a donation to St. Jude Children's Hospital, maybe for a dollar or whatever. And that started a few years ago, and we're now close to eighty million dollars that we've raised uh, for St. Jude Hospital. One day a month we give all of our profits from every chili in the United States to the hospital. The other days, it's our guests. Our guests are actually giving us a dollar or two. They're contributing. So in the beginning, I was worried that our guests would say, well, don't push your charity on me. And what we found out is guests would come in, and again, assuming what you're asking for is not much, it's a dollar, uh, they would say, well, gosh, this is great. I feel good. I went out to eat, but I, I left helping fight pediatric cancer. I didn't have to do anything. Chili's kind of did it for me. I got to draw a crayon and they hung it on the wall and I gave a dollar and now I'm part of helping rid the world of pediatric cancer. So I would say primarily, you know, from a selfish standpoint, sure, you want to do the right thing in your community. Uh, but from a uh, doing the right thing standpoint, you also want to help give back. And we also used to pick Monday and Tuesday nights our slower nights, we still do this, and we'll find some local charity or some local family that's had a tragedy or something happen, and we'll invite everyone into our restaurant on those nights and give 10 or 20% of our sales to that charity. Now, what happens is our sales actually go up 40 or 50% on that night because we're getting supported by the folks that want to help the community, and uh, so it's good for us and it's good for them. And I just think in a neighborhood, you want to always be seen as somebody that does the right thing and give back. and. So our company has continued to do that. My wife and I actually chair a St. Jude Hospital event every year. We chaired a couple weeks ago and raised a couple million dollars. And so it it feels good to know that nobody wants children to have cancer. And so if you pick the right local or national partner, get your team members involved, let your guests know about it. Usually pretty much everybody embraces it. Wonderful advice. Yeah, people seem to like doing business with people they like. That's right. It's, it's really pretty simple, uh, but you have to be genuine 
And, and I can tell you, if, if Chili's told a lot of our servers right now we are going to no longer work at St. Jude Hospital, people quit on the spot. I mean, they they, they feel like, one, one time one person told me, now I like working at Chili's most of the year, but I love working at Chili's in September because that's when we give money to St. Jude Hospital. Um, so what you do is sometimes more important than what you say. And it's nice to know that the people who are working at the restaurant um, – uh, like to have that uh, fulfillment and sense of meaning uh, that goes beyond just making a living. Um, uh, that's a, a wonderful thing about the hospitality industry, at least in my experience. Hey, Doug, um, we like to wrap things up with this uh, list of questions we call our final five faves. And uh, so our listeners can get a little uh, more of a sense of your, uh, your, your personal uh, preferences. And so I'd like to start out, uh, what's your favorite go-to food item when you uh, want something special, what might be some comfort food you really like, uh, maybe it's something you make at home, maybe it's something you get someplace else, what's, uh, what's your go-to? Where I guess I can't go to the Great Mine Company or Park where Chris and I work because they're not around anymore. I had some good choices there, but uh, one of the brands Brinker owns is Maggiano's, Little Italy. There's three locations here in Houston, and I love Maggiano's. I love Rigatoni D. It's a real comfort food. It's a, a pasta dish that has mushrooms and chicken in it, and wine. It's just delicious, and it's chili. Just a burger not on the menu anymore. The chili's trip burger, but. Yeah, my go-tos are places that the company that I work for, Chili's Trip Burger, Rigatoni D at Maggiano's. Rigatoni, you always wanted to be Italian. <laughs> oh, you better believe it. <laughs> so with all of the traveling you've done, um, what do you think is the best food city? Well, I don't think it's close. I, you know, New Orleans, New York is pick two, but New Orleans is pick one. Like we were in New Orleans uh, earlier this year and saw University of Houston Tulane football game and just doesn't matter which place you walk into, from the beignet and coffee in the morning to uh, all the different restaurants. New Orleans, just the you know the, the culture of that city is about food and eating out, and I, and I love New Orleans. And uh, what about your favorite place to visit? Any place in the world, a city that you like going back to and hope to go back to again soon? Well, we, we've been fortunate; we've got to travel a lot. But we used to do a uh, speaking about how you take care of your team members. One of the things we did every year was we reward the top 10% of our Chili's general managers every year and take a trip to Maui. The general manager and their spouse gets to spend four days with all the leaders of the company in Maui. And so I got to go to Maui a whole bunch of times and uh, ended up taking our family. And I just think it's one of the most beautiful places that the beaches, the golf courses, the restaurants, the scenery. So Maui would have to be uh, the one special place that I've gone and love to go back. And nothing wrong with that. That sounds wonderful to me. Uh, how about a favorite person, impact person, influencer on you, mentor or something? Well, I, I mentioned my mom earlier, and you know, my father died when I was seven, and my mom raised eight kids. So you talk about uh, a hero, but a lot of it was in business. So she she ran a deli at a large grocery store. She was involved in the hospitality business and food business. Uh, you know, but but business-wise, Norman Brinker, the, the namesake of our company, there's nobody I've ever been around that was, you know, a lot of times you work for leaders that are good business side and you work for some that are good people, but they don't have both. Well, Norman had both. He knew how to drive business results, grow companies, work with Wall Street, but the same day he could show up at a restaurant and communicate with dishwashers and servers and, and be a people person. He just combined both and he, he knew how to, teach you how to run a business and he and again he trained a lot of the leaders in the industry for multiple decades but he was also the nicest guy in the world he took an interest in you as a person but also pushed you 
and was honest with you when he gave me feedback. Uh, Norman Brinker was amazing. And finally, Doug, um, do you have a favorite book or even a poem or a passage that uh, is meaningful to you um, in any regard? There's a bunch of Norman Brinker passages, but, but book-wise, there's an author that I love. His name is Patrick Lencioni, and I hope some of your listeners have uh, noted. And Patrick has multiple books, but great books on leadership. But there is one book for certain that anyone that has a restaurant uh, should get, and it's called The Truth About Employee Engagement. The, the book was originally titled The Three Signs of a Miserable Job, and then later he retitled The Truth About Employee Engagement. So if you Google Lencioni, you could get those two books, but it, it's the character in the book is the guy that works multiple jobs and has a theory about what it takes to be a great leader. And one of the jobs he has in that book is a running a restaurant. But it basically, it talks about the three things that a leader does or has to do if they want to make a difference or get engaged with their employees. And I think for someone who's in the business, it's, it's my go-to book. It's so simple and so basic and it's so unbelievable that more people aren't good at, at, at these connections with team members that Patrick Lencioni talks about. He has some other great books too. Uh, I recommend a lot of them, but uh, The Truth About Employee Engagement is incredibly insightful if you're a leader in the hospitality business. Well, I plan to pick that one up myself. So, Doug, here's a quick question for you. If the chilies that you experienced early on that you described, you remember the casual, small menu, baskets of food, table service, small, great margaritas, selection of beer. If that Chili's was created today, do you think it'd be well received by the market? I think it'd be very well received by the market. And, you know, uh, on a different show, I'd have to talk about all the mistakes we made in growing the brand. It was a very small menu. Almost everything was made from scratch in the restaurant at that time. Uh, it was just kind of a funky joint. Uh, you know, it just, it just felt like this great joint. Uh, yeah. I was at Good Company Taqueria last night on Kirby and 59, and it, it felt like that. You know, yes. great yes. food. The people that worked there were wonderful. It just it was kind of a joint, and that's what Chili's was. But you got value, you got incredible hospitality, you got high quality and flavorful food, and hey, that's all we all want, right? Well, listeners, you've just heard um, some of the best restaurant principles from certainly one of our industry's best people. So, Doug, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, Barry and I really appreciate your insights. Uh, your impact on the industry is immeasurable, and I think the facts uh, and opinions that you have on the industry are certainly well, uh, you know, well taken. So everybody, um, um, everyone can, I think, profit by your experiences and your influence. Thanks again for joining us on today's Corner Booth. Chris, I, I very thank you both. It's an honor to be with you. I think the last point I'd make is I'm just a regular old guy. I love the business. I worked hard, surrounded myself with people smarter than me. And uh, I think the industry is as exciting and uh, there's opportunities today as there ever were. And hopefully something I said today made some sense and might help somebody. Thanks for the honor of being with you. You absolutely did, man. I love you. And uh, give Holly a hug. Thank you. And thanks again to all our friends at Benny Key Food Company for sponsoring us here at the Corner Booth. They're the home of the independent restaurant operator because they believe in your success. If you're interested in learning more about how their products, services, and other value-added items can help you grow and succeed, please contact them, 832-652-5888, or visit them on the web, bennykeith.com slash food slash host. 
Hey, thanks for joining us today on The Corner Booth. Until next time, it's Chris Tripoli. And Barry Schuster. Saying thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon right here in The Corner Booth. Till then, go make it a good shift. <laughs>